I'm Katie Daly. Welcome to Bluegrass Stories. Our guest today is a no-depression columnist, a blogger, photographer, and videographer with a definite point of view. Howard Parker called Ted Lehman to talk about some of his ideas, thoughts, and opinions. Ted Lehman, you are prolific, if not the most prolific, bluegrass blogger currently writing today, but certainly not born into, uh, how should I put it, the bosom of bluegrass music. What sparked your interest in bluegrass and uh, roots music in general? Well, uh, my wife and Irene, uh, my wife Irene and I come from, have always both loved music, but we come from different musical traditions. Uh, she she uh, grew up in a household where big band music was was very important, and she played in the, played and sang in high school and college, uh, in bands and in smaller groups uh, on the flute and any other kind of wind instrument. And she's a wonderful harmony singer. Uh, I was I studied violin as a kid, but I I always call it the uh, five most miserable years in my life. And violin never became a fiddle for me. Uh, I grew up with uh, a variety of kinds of music from Gilbert and Sullivan, and, and uh, the first concert I remember ever going to was Toscanini conducting the uh, uh, New York Philharmonic, and uh, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, Paul Robeson, Pete Seeger, the Weavers. In the in the early 2000s, uh, we were looking around for something to do that we would could enjoy together and decided that we would go to a music festival. And our first music fest, although we had gone to a couple of bluegrass events in Myrtle Beach, and Irene had fallen in love with Alan Bybee and his band uh, uh, Blue Ridge with Junior Sisk in it. But we decided to go to uh, Merle Fest, and I thought Merle Fest was a bluegrass festival. So we walked onto the campus at Wilkes Community College and looked around at the, the the uh, tents and the stages and music coming from every direction and said, oh, this is bluegrass. That was our first bluegrass festival. Did you did you happen to be in, in North Carolina at the time of uh, Merle Fest, or, or did you decide to uh, travel uh, uh, to North Carolina specifically uh, uh, to basically encounter the whole Merle Fest uh, vibe? We went to Merlefest uh, on our way back to our home in the Northeast from, from Florida. And uh, we scheduled it, and we, and we knew we were coming, and that's the way we were. We scheduled stuff. Uh, but we really didn't have any idea what we were getting into when we came to that event. And, and for us, uh, who are always easy, early, we always get places early. We arrived in, in Wilkesboro and set up at, wherever our first couple of years there were spent and went down to the campus. And on the three days before Merle Fest on uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, they have jams on the Wilkes Community College uh, campus. Uh, and they're wonderful jams, the kind of jams you'd expect from the people who go to Merle Fest. But at one of the circles, there was this group of three people playing and welcoming other people to come sit in and play with them. And it was uh, Jens and Juve Kruger and, and Joel. So our first, one of our first introductions was to a jam that was led by the Kruger brothers. What happened? Did you have an, a, an epiphany and decided, hey, we're going to start 
cruising around the country, going to bluegrass festivals, or uh, where 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 did you seek out the bluegrass music uh, uh, after Merlefest? Well, I think the the first events we went to were in New England and upstate New York, and uh, one of our one of the one of the best of the festivals, which was early in its career which has be, has become a major festival was, was Jenny Brook uh which at that time was held in a in a small county park and is now on a, a large fairgrounds so we went to Jenny Brook we went to a, a small festival in uh, Elizabethtown New York on the edge of the Adirondacks which if i remember correctly had both the Gibson brothers and Sam Bush in its in its second iteration so we we met the the Gibson brothers quite early in our bluegrass experiences and and we we went we just went to things that we discovered the uh, in, in the same way that that the internet has always been an important part of my bluegrass experience both our bluegrass experiences we discovered festivals and started mapping them out and finding them when it was hard to do online but but we found them and we went to them and in addition to that we visited uh instrument shops and we visited musicians uh, in their homes as we met them and they invited us and they they welcomed us and and Irene made it even better because she uh, one day at, uh, at Yeehaw Junction down in Florida noticed that a band was tired that it was nothing fancy and hey you guys look tired why don't you just let me watch your CDs for you and you go take a rest and Mike Andy's uh, handed her the cash box said everything in there cost fifteen dollars see you later. And and it might be worthwhile to uh, to add at this time that of course uh, uh, you've been joined by your lovely wife Irene, who uh, uh, affectionately known as some as the bluegrass merch lady. Yes, or even the queen of merch. Even the the queen of merch, and and it makes no difference if if you're a band in need and you're tired, and if you want to sell merchandise, Irene Lehman apparently appears out of nowhere and will uh, will man your merch table for you. That's correct, and and actually I've seen her uh, work four different tables out of four different pockets at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So, uh, 2006, you decided to, to start your blog, which is uh, Ted Lehman's Bluegrass Books and Brainstorms, and we'll we'll focus on the obviously the the bluegrass portion uh, right here. Um, for for those several that might be un, uninitiated, can you describe what a blog is? Well, a, a blog is a a, a, a an online. Uh, way to 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 share ideas it, it, it's uh it's a journal in a sense and and uh blogging wasn't entirely new at that time but uh i there weren't very many people writing about about bluegrass the oldest bluegrass blog actually is bob cherry's cybergrass.com is is bob cherry's blog and i think he's still doing it although i haven't visited it in a while and at that time, uh, John Lawless and his uh, uh, partner uh, at the time, uh, Branch Gillingham, were started with a bluegrass blog, which has since become uh, Bluegrass Today and changed its uh, it, its nature into the most important piece of journalism that's being done on uh, bluegrass journalism that's online these days. Uh, but I had heard about blogging and had been looking at blogs and... and uh, 
knew that writing was something that I, I could do. I could communicate that way, and I loved taking pictures. And, and what I was lacking was something that I really thought I could write about and wanted to write about. And when we discovered bluegrass, it became pretty obvious to me that there was a, a synchronicity between between our love that was developing for bluegrass, even though our knowledge was slight, and uh, the world of blogging and the world of blogging opened up to me. And within a few years, I was writing about a, between 130 and 150 or 60 entries a year on that blog. So if if we go back to uh, to 2006 or or thereabouts the early blogs I mean you, you here you are basically a a bluegrass initiate what what were you writing about in uh, in 2006 Well some of the themes that I was discovering even then are themes that are are still with me that the uh, that the, the line between uh, Traditional music, is, as it was represented still at that time, and still by the music that Bill Monroe made and, and uh, uh, Flat and Scruggs and the Osborne Brothers and the Stanleys and so on, and, and new movements coming into bluegrass and bluegrass reaching out its tentacles into what's now known as Americana uh, was was in a change process that technology was changing the music was changing the culture was changing and so with it the music and and i guess i was a person that saw some of that and wanted to write about it so that i think that in some ways my my blog uh said some things that really irritated the hardcore uh traditionalists but nobody else much was writing about that sort of thing and particularly not for free well, and that that brings up an interesting point. How how were you received in the in the early years, and and how has that changed? If it has changed through the, oh, let me see, two thousand six to two thousand and twenty, so four, fourteen years. Uh, it, it's hard for me to to assess how other people uh, receive what I do. I know that that uh, one of the things that because because as things developed and, and as I tried to take advantage of them, uh, the media world that I inhabited that at that point began to expand. And so I was, uh, I, I got interested in, in video and I started posting videos on YouTube and I, and Facebook came along and I started promoting other people and promoting myself on Facebook and, and, and Twitter and, and, uh, uh, some of the some of the things went by the by the board. I was never interested in Pinterest, and I never found a place there. Uh, but it it began to feel to me like a sort of an integrated approach to talking about bluegrass. There's some people that scream at me online and scream at me uh, silently. There's a lot of people uh, that uh, disagree with me, and some of them are are. Uh, our names that everyone who's interested in bluegrass uh, would recognize. And I've always encouraged people to disagree with me and uh, people who correct me, correct errors. I make, I immediately write them a, an email and thank them for their correction and appoint them to my editorial board. Your, your editorial board of, of one, correct? <laughs> well, my, my editorial board has probably hundreds of members who I'm grateful to. And, uh, 
a lot of people have, along the line have mentored me, and I've learned an awful lot from them. Some of them are very familiar names, people like John Wallace and, and, and John Weisberger, who uh, John Wallace doesn't uh, write me notes anymore, but Weisberger, if he doesn't like something that I've written, doesn't hesitate to tell me so, and I don't ever block that material. If it comes publicly, I leave it where it is. And and it might be worth uh, it might be worth noting that uh, John Weisberger, amongst uh, uh, many things, of course, a great ba- bass player, songwriter, but also uh, prior chairman of the uh, International Bluegrass Music Association. That's right, and I've been encouraged by IBMA. Uh, there was a point at which uh, we were looking at IBMA membership, and, and I was very reluctant to call myself a professional. I'm not a musician, and we can talk about how I came to terms with that. But I, I'm not a professional musician. I'm only, a, at the very best, a, a, a poor guitar player. I, I listen. I listen out of a background of, of, of in, in diff- a variety of kinds of music. And, and people like John and uh, a, a promoter in South Carolina named Jennings Chestnut, who sadly has left us, taught me huge amounts about the music and its history, We've learned from attending a range of kinds of festivals. Musicians have spent time with us, uh, helping us to understand what goes on. Uh, we were lucky enough uh, some years ago to be invited to a, a rehearsal of a new recording by Larry Stevenson at his home, and watching a uh, watching a band develop songs and, and prepare them for recording was a wonderful experience for us. So we've had. People have, have offered us wonderful experiences, and we've written about them and, and, and told people about them, and, and they appreciate that. You wrote in 2012 that that year, um, you and Irene traveled 20,000 miles in the pursuit of, of bluegrass festivals. If I extrapolate that to, uh, oh, let's say 2018, and I understand that you guys have cut back significantly, that that's close to, I don't know, 200,000 miles over the course of, of, um, of your blog, uh, publication. Is that fairly close? You think? That wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me. I've never kept the mileage, but, uh, We've gone as far west as uh, since we've been doing this as Western Kentucky, and uh, we visited. Uh, we visited in Owensboro, and we went out to the uh, we went out to the uh, country music jamboree out in in, in uh, Western Kentucky, and we we spent a good deal of time in Tennessee, driving around Tennessee. We went to festivals in Georgia. And, and a lot in Florida, going back and forth, we spent a huge amount of our time in North Carolina. Uh, we were lucky enough to meet another blogger. He, he, he called himself Dr. Tom Bybee online and purported to be a doctor who played the mandolin and played golf and had attended the uh, Sand Hills Medical School in North Carolina, which after a good deal of research, we discovered there was no such place. And uh, Dr. Bybee, Tom Bybee, and I sort of danced around each other. He started appearing on my blog, and I started appearing on his, and he was a marvelous storyteller. And he eventually told me who he was. He was a physician from Shelby, North Carolina, named Bobby Jones. And by the time we met and started going to Shelby, 
Darren and Brooke Aldridge were just getting married, uh, engaged, and we traveled places with them, and we uh, went to uh, events with Bobby and, and grew very close to that bluegrass community in Cleveland County, North Carolina. And that was a, a major event in our lives. And, and sadly, Bobby died about four years ago. So in in your travels, uh, um, I'm not sure if you have a count of how many festivals you've attended, certainly dozens and maybe in in into the hundreds. And, and without naming names, but c- can you describe what you think makes a good bluegrass festival? And perhaps if you can describe again, without naming names, perhaps some of the some of the failings in in bluegrass festival promotion. Wow, that's uh, that's a book that I haven't written. I, I think that the the uh, the change in technology, even in the fifteen years that we've been doing this, has been just amazing. Uh, we were at a festival last weekend, uh, and the sound company was providing the most superb sound that that we've heard. And and I remember going to festivals. Uh, in the in the earlier parts of of this century, where it's just being the music was loud and it was it was unfiltered and it was uh, to my ears almost unmusical. So that people have learned to to use the technology and make it work better for them. Some of the the traditions of bluegrass seem to me to have been things that I believe were forced on the music because of the circumstances that the early people traveled in. You know, when a when a band traveled in a in a in even a, a large car trying to get five musicians and and all their instruments in the car and get from one town in North Carolina to another one for a for an old stone schoolhouse uh, show and then a radio show the next morning fifty miles away, uh, there was no room in the in the car for no drums and I think that's largely why Bill Monroe and and, and Flat and Scruggs developed this no drums thing because there was no place to put a drum kit. So they learned that this, they discovered the percussive uh, qualities of a variety of instruments and the, uh, the insistence on many bluegrassers to, to maintain uh, the for, uh, to, to move into and become comfortable with a, a multi mic setup now where they stand in a row across the stage and, and, and sing their songs and believe that's sufficient to, reach a high level of attainment in, in, in bluegrass today is it's just not consistent with what an audience requires. They, they want to, they go to a bluegrass festival, large numbers of them to hear a show, not just to hear great music and great musicians. And, and as far as the uh, facilities offered in, in the bluegrass festivals that you've attended all of these years uh, are for the most part, they're, they're adequate, um, they're clean. They're sanitary. They're safe. Uh, have you run into any any issues? <laughs> There's no irony there, Howard. Of course, they're not any of those things. They're porta potties and, and inadequate food and, and uh, cold nights and rainy days often and, and under circus tents. And uh, I, I think this comfort goes with the show. Uh, Back in uh, in uh, even even at Fincastle in the first first bluegrass festival in 1965, it rained, 
Uh, it's hardly a bluegrass festival if you go to it and you get four days of warm sunshine. It just doesn't happen. So you and, and uh, you use porta potties, and mostly you don't get a shower for three or four days, and people are probably pretty rank by the fourth day. But uh, there's a a shared misery that people love and they look forward to, and they love getting together in that setting that uh, traditionally was in a cow field, and now it's more often in a little bit more civilized campground, but still a, a bit primitive for some people's taste. Well, sure, and and as as a fan, and and you've acknowledged that you're you're you and Irene are are, are not um, musicians. Um, um, as a fan, I would imagine that, um, like many, you attend the bluegrass festivals for the stage show. Does it amaze or amuse you that um, uh, that there is always a contingent that uh, seems to show up at a bluegrass festival that never seems to hit the main stage at all? That uh, basically they're just in it for the uh, for the camping experience, for the picking experience uh, out in the field someplace. It did at first, uh, but it no longer does. Uh, one of our formative experiences, I think I started going in my second year, in our second year at, at Merle Fest, and Irene joined me soon after, was uh, going to Pete Wernick's jam camps, at uh, first at Merle Fest and then later at Gettysburg. And uh, Pete also stands as one of the great mentors in, in our experience, and uh, so we learned that, that that jamming is an integral part of, of the music early on. And I try to make it a point to get out in the field at every festival we go to and, and uh, listen to jams. And occasionally I'll drag my guitar over to a jam where I know that novices are welcome and uh, play a few songs and sit in because it's just plain fun, even if I'm not very good at it. But uh, I think the thing almost that amazes me even more is the uh, the myth. I suppose it's a myth. Maybe it's a dream that the line between professional musicians standing on a stage and performing and high quality jams is still not a pretty uh, broad step to take, and that somehow, hey gang, let's form a band. And the the uh, use of showcases early on in, in a festival to help fill out the schedule uh, tends to reinforce that fiction that that it's an easy step. In in your experience, Ted, does does that happen a lot? Do you see these? Uh, I wouldn't call them fill-in acts, but. Um, Acts where perhaps there's a, a the the promoter in an effort to uh, fill in space may reach out to a regional or local band is is that endemic in the in the festival industry or does it just seem to happen at certain festivals? No, I think I think people uh, just the economics of running a festival suggests that in a, at a three or four day festival you, you, where uh, the audience expects to hear four or five bands a day. Uh, a promoter can't afford more than one or two uh, A-level bands and, and a couple, maybe another band, uh, B-level band along with it and fills it in with, with regional and local bands. And, and one of the secrets about regional and local bands is that some of them are very, very good. Uh, they record, they travel when they can, but they, they're people, they're working people. 
And they continue to work because the risk of saying, I'm going to become a full-time musician, try to make a living doing this, is great for, uh, for young people and for the few really great oldsters. And a lot of people are drifting in and out of it because it's hard on families and it's hard on, on, on their own image of who they'd like to become and how they'd like to do it. So that, uh, again, this weekend we went to a festival that was headlined by some of the top bands in bluegrass and had lots of bands from New England. And if you think of New England as being roughly the size of Indiana, all of New England, roughly the size of Indiana, it's quite remarkable how many bands can not make a living, but certainly supplement their incomes and make huge sacrifices in order to be able to go to a festival every weekend from Labor Day to uh, from uh, Memorial Day through Labor Day, which is when we have our best weather here, and get to play at festivals because they're good enough for others to hear. Well, you you bring up an, an interesting point because there is a, uh, unlike uh, many other music genres, there is a uh, huge percentage of player fans. Professionalism is sort of, um, I wouldn't say it's ill-defined in the music, but it's, it's very flexible. Do you like where the music is heading um, in 2019? Uh, yeah, I'm really excited by it, and I know not everyone is, but I, I, I think Part of what you're talking about is, is the nature of nostalgia, which is something I write about and think about a good deal. And it, it has seemed to me that uh, the things that we're nostalgic for, whether it's in lifestyle or in music, or in, uh, which may be the same thing, or, or almost anything else that we yearn for in our past, probably has something to do with what we were listening to and what we were doing and how we were living when we were somewhere between the ages of 15 and 24, 23, 20, during the period that we were going through puberty. And that, uh, so that what was popular then is what we see as being traditional. And the interesting thing about tradition is that it's a moving target. So what was traditional to people 10 years older than I am is quite different from what was, is traditional people who are 10 years younger than we are. Yet there's a, there's a core in the music that goes back to the mountains and back to the Carter family and back to the early bands of the Monroes in the 30s and the uh, Flat, and, Flat, and, Flat and Scruggs and those, uh, those other pioneer, uh, J.D. Crow and, and Jimmy Martin and so on through the the 50s and 60s and 70s that people cling to and say that's the only bluegrass there is. That's the real bluegrass. How come they ain't making that anymore? But the world has changed and, and uh, what people, uh, the culture has changed. And as Ron Thomason pointed out recently, uh, uh, when he started making music, about 90% of the population lived in rural America. When I hear people complaining about uh, perhaps the direction that that bluegrass is taking, however you you define um, bluegrass, there are still new exciting. Uh, bands that play bluegrass in the classic tradition. I mean, off the top of my head, 
Um, uh, the Poe Rambling Boys have certainly made an extraordinary mark over the last several years. Uh, Danny Paisley continues to make uh, uh, the the best music of his career, and and bands like uh, High Fidelity, for instance, are out there really making their mark. So those new bands are are still out there being offered to these people. One of my favorite rising bands is a band from Kentucky called Hammertown. I think they're they're doing uh, just terrific work, and they're writing new songs in in, in traditional styles. And, and yes, we still have to see about the longevity of of, of those bands. And I, I I have a concern about any band that forms and then decides to make music in the style of whoever in the style of is rather than seeking their own style. And that has to do with just my sense of the difference between a performer and an artist. And I, I see artists as people who are drawn to grow in new directions and to challenge themselves and to take risks. And those are the people that are pointing to the future of our music. And and yet, if you talk to many musicians, they'll... they'll they'll very often say uh, the reason I, pl- I play what I play is because I really have no choice. I can't make music any other way. This is what I want to do. And more power to them. But they are also the same ones that many of them that are having difficulty finding an audience. So the diversity in bluegrass music, and we're not defining really bluegrass music, um, a good thing? Uh, uh, Notice that IBMA doesn't define bluegrass music either. Correct. So uh, uh, diversity, again, a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing? It's a good thing. And the, uh, one, of the, the, one area where we, where we lack sufficient diversity is, is in, uh, in race. We're doing much better with regard to finding uh, wonderful spots for women to become outstanding uh, as 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 uh, in their own right, rather than as a the, the the wife of a band leader or 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 as a singer, but as entire bands, and it's a wonderful thing to see. Uh, I'd like to see more people of color in bands. Uh, I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but I don't know that it's happening in other musics either. And and what about those um, uh, international contributors? Wonderful, uh, you know. Uh, there's a, a, a lively uh, and appreciative audience, uh, uh, both in, in Japan and in Europe. Uh, big festivals in the Netherlands, in Czechoslovakia, in France, Germany. And, and they're growing their own music. I think that they may have one or two American bands that come to each one of those festivals, but they're providing homegrown music, too. And I, I really haven't heard the diversity of music they play because we haven't been to Europe since bluegrass except for once and that wasn't a music trip in the in the past um ibma the international bluegrass music association has certainly um had its uh, ups and downs and you've been occasionally uh, vocal about the the mission and management of ibma um what are your thoughts here in 2019 well i, I think it you know it continues to encounter the, the same problems, and, and that is that it, it, 
I, I think that actually the, the, the move to Raleigh has been a wonderful move for them because of the way in which North North Carolina is one of the, the, the most important seedbeds for, for originating and continuing bluegrass music. I mean, remember, it's not only the home of a lot of great traditional musicians, it's the home of the Steep Canyon Rangers. All go out of the soil of North Carolina, the spirit of North Carolina, and, and uh, Raleigh has reinvigorated IVMA just with the infusion of energy and money that's made a big difference. But it's it's a challenge to run to try to run a professional organization uh, for a, a widespread international community with five people located in Nashville. So, do you think on on the whole they're they're living up to the challenge? I mean, uh, we we can always say that an organization can do better. They offer an awful lot, particularly during the the week of uh, World of uh, Bluegrass. It's um, uh, if you're a professional, however you define bluegrass professional, there is a lot to a lot to experience there. Uh, are there some improvements that can be made either during the World of Bluegrass or or in their overall mission statement? You think? Well, I don't. You know, mission statements aren't what what in the end drive an organization. I, I think uh, one of the things that particularly interests me uh, right now, and, and I've written some about this and run, and run into some headwind on it, is the, the number of, of young players that I'm seeing coming into bands now who are coming, they're not coming right out of, of high school and out of uh, and off the farm. They're coming out of the colleges and, and uh, a variety of colleges that have a different emphases in their programs, but ETSU and Moorhead State in in the, in the uh, South and the Midwest and, and uh, Berkeley College of Music in Boston are just sending out the wonderful bands. And beyond being super musicians, I think they're, they're, the programs in those colleges are training the kids in, in elements of professionalism not just as musicians, but as uh, people that know how to manage their careers and that uh, have a business mind as well as a, a musical mind and are, are learning how the, the parts of, of music that are harder than getting up on stage and singing and performing. The, the, you know, the, the drudgery of making the phone calls and making sure that these days your social media uh, presence is lively and active and that you're cultivating your your audience and, and adjusting the change between uh, recording to uh, touring to support your records to recording to support your tour is, is huge. And they have to be able to afford to stay on tour to be able to, to thrive. So there's remarkable transitions taking place in music because of technology. Do you think that the uh, the the, uh, the the bands that got their genesis, uh, oh, let's say on 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 the front porch, do you think those bands will eventually um, give way? Uh, do you think that there's a trend in in more formally educated uh, and trained bands and? Uh, and those bands that were born of the region will give way to those uh, new professional bands? I'm not sure what, what you mean by give way. I, I think that, and, and I believe this to my core, that wherever you start in, 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 in music, and it, 
that, but in, in particularly in, in the a folk derived music that. Uh, if your first experience was with Sam Bush or, or, or Bela Fleck or uh, Norm Pickelney or if it was with Flatt and Scruggs and Bill Monroe or, and uh, Jimmy Martin, that you're inevitably drawn in two directions. One is towards the things that are changing and also towards the roots. Anybody that becomes serious about the music has to go back to the... Uh, the explosion of country music in Bristol and before that to the mountains and to the people that went down there and collected songs and the, the back porches. And they treasure that. Part of the forces that keep the, the focus on that is that those songs are singable, which means that they are in the jams so that young people are growing up hearing that music around a campfire with their parents. I don't think that music is going to die. And, and I, I have a, a, a absolute belief that that the directions that many bands are growing, some of them are going to trail off and we won't hear them again, and others will become mainstream, and and still others, people who got their learn their chops in bluegrass, or uh, and in bluegrass and gospel music, and have gone into country music and gone into country rock and gone into other forms of music. And I'd like to see bluegrass people, instead of saying, well, that ain't bluegrass, own those people and say, they came from us, and we're proud of them. We're proud to see Jason Isbell do what he's doing. We're proud to see people win the uh, Steve Martin Prize because of their difference and because of their innovation. Ted, is is there anything um, else you'd like to uh, touch on? Uh, we've Well, I, th- I think... Uh, the thing that has been so important to us and has kept us doing this for a long time is the friends we've made out there. And the bluegrass community is a community that we, uh, we feel we've come to feel at home with in and, uh, people who know me better or who follow me on Facebook and, uh, particularly on Facebook, not so much on my blog, know that my 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 personal politics is somewhat to the left of many bluegrassers. Um, and I'm grateful to those people who are willing to forgive my politics for, for, for the, what I write about music, and they, they tell me that often enough. Uh, so it's been such a rich part of our lives, and as we are slowly, trans, I hope, slowly transitioning uh, into other ways of enjoying music. Uh, we're just so grateful that, to that community that made us feel so at home over these years. And uh, we also do want to mention that um, in addition to, te- uh, to Ted's excellent blog, that you are, you're also a staff writer for No Depression Magazine, um, which is a terrific uh, Roots Music um, magazine. Uh, what what's your focus on uh, uh, with your no depression articles? Well, I write. A, I've been writing for much to my own surprise. I've been writing for uh, no depression for uh, about ten years because I submitted uh, and they published stuff that I wrote before they hired me. Uh, but they came to me uh, about six years ago and asked me if I'd like to write a, a column. Uh, and we decided to call it Bluegrass Rambles, and they said I could write about anything I wanted to that had to do with bluegrass music. So I started out writing a weekly column uh, and did that for several years and then found keeping the, the deadline for a weekly column 
uh, was more than I, I really could handle. It's now down to I, I publish a, one column a month in No Depression, but the, the support that I've had from No Depression, uh, uh, who is the first per, first musical organization that ever paid me on a regular basis besides YouTube, has been wonderful, and they've they've given me a new audience that's much broader than the bluegrass audience. Ted, does that uh, column also appear in their print editions? Uh, the print edition is completely separate from the online magazine nowadays. It's a very carefully edited, uh, almost a coffee table uh, quality quarterly magazine that's filled with beautiful pictures and curated articles, and it's a great, great piece of work. I also have a, uh, have a YouTube channel, which is has become integral to, to what I write because I use a lot of my YouTube stuff both on my Facebook page and in my uh, in my blog. But the YouTube channel, uh, again, it's a source of income, which I appreciate, and, and also has created a new audience for me. Uh, it was a pleasure a couple of years ago when I introduced myself to someone who said to me, Oh, you're the guy with the YouTube channel instead of saying, "Oh, you're the guy with the blog." Uh, it was a surprise <laughs> to me. And the the success of Josh Williams' uh, bird song back five or six years ago was a huge surprise, and it's now nearly at three million plays. And the YouTube channel is searchable under Ted Lehman. Yes. And and by the way, for anyone uh, listening, that is L E H M A N N. Right, two ends. Two ends, and and the blog is uh, Ted Layman, which is uh, one one word, Ted Layman uh, dot blogspot dot com. You've been listening to a conversation between Howard Parker and No Depression columnist, blogger, photographer, and videographer Ted Lehman. We hope you'll listen to other episodes of Bluegrass Stories, all available here on soundcloud.com slash bluegrassstories. Thanks for listening.